Hey everyone, if we haven't met, my name is Jacinta and I'm one of the pastors here at HTVB. Last week, Sheila spoke about our spiritual postures in seasons of stress. And today, we continue this mini two-part series on stress. We also find ourselves continuing in the same book, Exodus, and the same story of the Israelites making their way through the wilderness. But this time, we're in chapter 18, where we read about a conversation that Moses has with his father-in-law, Jethro. Now, before we go into the passage, let's rewind a little bit. In chapter 14, the Israelites had been in slavery, but God led them to freedom out of Egypt through a dry path in the Red Sea. In chapter 16, the Israelites were hungry and God provided food for them by raining down bread from heaven called manna. And then in chapter 17, the enemies, the Amalekites, they began attacking the Israelites and Moses would simply raise his hands and each time he did, the Israelites would win. But each time he lowered his hands, the Amalekites would win. Moses' brother Aaron and his nephew Hur then helped him. They gathered around him, one on each side. They helped keep his arms raised. And eventually, the Israelites won the battle simply because Moses kept his hands raised. So it's into this context we enter the passage today. Moses is now camped near the mountain of God and Jethro, his father-in-law, he comes to meet him. And Moses tells him everything that God has done for them, all the hardships they've gone through, the miracles they've seen. And then just like a good old family reunion, they eat together. So let's read together now from Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 to 27. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to Him. Teach them His decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Amen. Now, to say that Moses and the Israelites have been going through a stressful situation is basically an understatement. You see, they had just come out of over 400 years of slavery. They were being chased down by the Egyptians as they crossed the Red Sea. They were unsure if the waters would eventually separate. Thankfully, it did. Then they were attacked by the Amalekites. 
And now they're wandering through the wilderness, hungry, thirsty, and probably very grumpy. Moses is now in a position of having to judge their squabbles. It reminds me of that time in Sparklers when a few of his parents had to break up a fight between some of the toddlers over the most prized toy in the room, a big furry brown bear they would all call Bintang's baby brother. And also, I'm reminded of that scene in the Titanic, you may have watched it, when the ship is filling up with water but Jack's handcuffed to a pipe and the only way that Rose can save him is to break his handcuffs with an axe. I wonder if you've been feeling a bit like Rose, like you're sinking in water. The tide is rising and you're finding it hard to breathe. And actually, you kind of wish you could switch places with someone else. And in Rose's case, she does. But enough about the Titanic. Maybe you're having to mediate fights around you between your children, co-workers, family members, loved ones. Or maybe you're racing against time, pressured by unending tasks, surrounded by temptations, or struggling with the temperament of the people around you. Maybe you're carrying burdens that you feel are just too heavy to bear. Maybe it has to do with finances or your relationships or both. If you're in a season of stress, you're in the right place. I'm so glad you've chosen to watch this sermon today. I hope it encourages you. How do you respond to stress? Well, one way to manage stress is to think of it like growing a muscle. My sister who does powerlifting, she tells me that there are two keys to doing this well. Firstly, the right posture. And secondly, developing strength. Last week, Sheila spoke about how we can have the right spiritual postures in seasons of stress. And for today, I want to talk about how to build strength in seasons of stress. So posture and strength. Ready? Here we go. When Jethro spoke to Moses, the first thing he said to him was, Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? He then said to him, You cannot handle it alone. And then he gave him instructions to select capable men from all the people and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. One of the most helpful definitions of stress that I've come across is uh, stress happens when external pressure is greater than internal strength. External pressure is greater than internal strength. And I'd imagine it's a bit like being in a pressure cooker where stress is coming at you from all sorts of directions. And Moses was certainly feeling that. The people were constantly grumbling and they said, Moses, we're thirsty, give us water. Moses, we're hungry, give us food. Moses, you brought us up out of Egypt to die of thirst? Moses, it's horrible being in the wilderness. If only we had died in Egypt. And then when God provided manna for them, if only we had meat to eat, we miss our cucumbers, our leeks, our onions, our garlics. You know, we never see anything else but this manna. Basically, they sound like grumpy Malaysians complaining about their unmet cravings for masala tose. Moses was so frustrated at one point, he said to the people, why do you quarrel with me? And then he said to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. You see, one moment Moses had saved the Israelites, the next moment they were ready to stone him. I remember one particularly stressful situation from when I was just learning to drive. 
thankfully these days, most of the time when we need to get somewhere, my husband, Abel, drives the car. I'm not very good at driving. In fact, I'm so not good at driving that my driving instructor reminded me of that fact every single lesson. He was an elderly uncle and his name was Mr. Chong. He was a bit grumpy. You'd think he'd been just wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But looking back, the driving lessons were so stressful and I had very little internal strength to cope with them at the time. I used to run home from those driving lessons and cry in my room. I was so dejected. I was such a terrible driver. And to make matters worse, because it was a tiny kanchil, his face was literally next to my ears. And even though I tried my best to keep my eyes fixed on the road, I could see from the corner of my eye his every moment. Each time he pressed on his imaginary bricks in panic, his droplets of sweat, his clenched knuckles holding on to anything he could for his dear life. But I persevered. And just as I thought I was improving, I arrived at my final class, the very final class, right before my driving exam. Mr. Chong opened his mouth, clearly about to give me a pep talk in preparation for my exam. I leaned in. I was all ears. And then he said to me, next Thursday, I have 20 students sitting their driving exam. The only one I'm worried about is you. <laughs> Thankfully, I passed my exam that day. But unfortunately, I sometimes still hear the words, I'm worried about your driving. On these occasions, it's not from Mr. Chong, my driving instructor, but from Mr. Chia, my husband. <laughs> I was 17 years old and I remember it to this day. I didn't have the strength I needed to withstand the stress I faced each time I got into that ganchil. It was a painfully stressful season for me. What do you do when you realize, like Moses, you don't have the strength to withstand the stress in your life? Well, the first way to build strength is to spread the load. To spread the load. Now, this is not to say that having a load is bad or even that stress is necessarily a bad thing. Jesus says to, this, to his disciples, do not be anxious about tomorrow. And the psalmist says, cast your burden on the Lord as if anxiety and burdens are to be expected in life. In fact, Romans 5 verse 3 tells us, that we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. This reminds me of the story of the grandfather clock that lived in a house for over three generations. For years, it ticked away faithfully. But one day it was sold and the new owner thought to himself, oh, such a shame that such an old clock should have to bear so great a load. So he took the heavy weight off the chain and at once, the grandfather clock stopped ticking. Why do you take away my weight? He asked. Well, I wanted to lighten your burden, the man said. But instead of asking to remove it, the clock said to him, please put it back. That's what keeps me going. You see, in seasons of stress, we can be tempted to think that burdens hold us back. But in the same way some friction is needed for our tires to keep on moving, stress can be the very source that keeps us striving forward. You see, Jethro could see that Moses' stress was no longer sustainable for him. When we look back in history, we know that the Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness. But in this passage, when Jethro meets with Moses and gives him advice, they were actually only two months in. They were 4% into the journey, so they had many, many more months to go. And while we know this fact looking back, Jethro gave his advice looking forward. He said in verse 18, You will only wear yourselves out. It's as if he could see into the future that the pace that Moses was going at was unsustainable 
and would therefore lead to burnout. On one level, it's asking God, what is sustainable for me? But I think on a deeper spiritual level, the discipline God is inviting us into is to ask the question, God, what are you calling me to do? And what are you calling me to pass on to others? It means asking for help. It means being disciplined about our rest just as God modeled rest after His work of creation. It also means being humble about the work that God is calling us to do because we can't do it all on our own. During the French Revolution, the French government cancelled the Sabbath. They said, every day is going to be a work day. And then a couple of years later, they had to reinstate the Sabbath because the health of the nation had crumbled. There is a humility in asking for help. And this is why leadership is a privilege and a gift. It's not an identity, but a responsibility. If you see it as an identity, you'll never want to pass it on. But if you see it as a responsibility, you'll always want to share it. And sharing can look like delegation. The thing about delegation is it isn't an abdication of tasks. It's an opportunity to empower others to be involved. I wonder who in your life are your leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Here in HDBB, we tend to use this framework for raising leaders, the four R's, reach, recruit, raise, and release. Who can you reach out to today? Who can you recruit to be involved in what God is doing in your family, your workplace, your project, your business venture? Who can you raise to take on some of your load? Who can you release responsibility and authority to? I wonder if there might be someone here and you're questioning your calling. It's easy to compare what God has called you to, to what God is calling others to. But being faithful to Jesus means staying in our lane and doing the best with what He's calling us to. You see, when we're doing less, that leads to boredom. When we're doing more, that leads to burnout. But when we're doing just what God is calling us to do, we can trust we're being obedient. And out of that faithfulness, God can make us fruitful. So the first way we build strength to withstand stress is to spread the load. And the second way we can do that is to select who you seek counsel from. Select who you seek counsel from. You see, while spreading the load might mean building a community you can do this with, these are your thousands and hundreds. Selecting who you seek counsel from means choosing a core group. In Jethro's terms, these are your 50s and 10s. And for you, it might mean the small handful of people you can count on whom you trust to give you good advice. They are your core. I love verse 21 where Jethro says to select capable men. And it says, but select capable men from all the people men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. And it's interesting that as he describes what capable means, he uses what sounds to me like character traits. He says three things. They fear God, they are trustworthy, and they hate dishonest gain. Basically, what I think he's saying here is the criteria for appointing leaders has less to do with their competence and more to do with their character. Stephen Covey, the author of the book, The Speed of Trust, he says that leadership trust is equal parts character and competency. He says you can look at any leadership failure in the world and it's always a failure of one or the other. In other words, I could be the most competent person ever, but without good character, I will never become the leader that God is calling me to be. On the flip side, 
I could be a person of utmost integrity and character, but without being competent at what I do, I will most definitely lose the trust of the people around me as a leader. I find this diagram quite useful. It has four quadrants and it just shows us if someone has high competence and high character, that makes you effective. And I'm sure that describes you, so well done. If someone has low competence but high character, that makes them well-meaning but not so effective. If a person has low competence and low character, that makes them ineffective. And if a person has low character but high competence, that makes them skilled but unscrupulous. I once came across a quote by a military officer. He said, in a war, every soldier would follow a leader who is both competent and of good character. But if they had to choose, they'd go with character. And it's the same with us. I wonder if you have people in your life you can go to to seek advice from. These are your Jethro's, your Aaron's, the people you allow to speak into your life. Because just as Jethro was giving Moses advice to build a core, Jethro was doing just that for him. And Moses listened. He didn't push back. He didn't defend his position as a leader. He didn't make it about him. He knew that to lead well, he needed to also be led. You see, it's not a coincidence that two chapters down in Exodus 20, Moses would soon be given the Ten Commandments, which would become the foundation for God's moral law. The Jews believe that all 613 laws in the Torah can be summed up in the Ten Commandments. That's how, how significant it was. It formed the basis for how society and morality would be governed. The problem was, who was going to help govern it? At that time, Moses was judge, jury, and executioner, the system comprised of one man. And Moses may not have realized it then, but Jethro, but Jethro was actually giving Moses a system to govern the law that was to come. God, in His kindness, was preparing the Israelites to receive the law. If Moses had not listened, they may not have been able to implement this governance system. How do we build strength to cope with seasons of stress? Firstly, we spread the load. Secondly, we select who we seek counsel from. And thirdly, and finally, we surrender ourselves. Ultimately, the best way to manage stress is to build internal strength to withstand external pressure. It has to start with you. You see, we'll never be able to control the stresses in our lives, but what we do have control over is our choice of response. Well, we choose to respond with kindness, gentleness, and humility. As Moses learned to let others lead, he needed to first learn to let go. He needed to not just delegate tasks, but to release authority. In verse 25 of our passage today, it says, He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people. And in the words of that iconic song by Michael Jackson from the 1980s, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If they want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. <laughs> When my younger sister was very little, we used to play hide-and-seek together. And I remember she had this funny quirk. It's like she didn't play hide-and-seek quite right. You see, she'd go and hide, and then we'd go looking for her. And then just as we would approach her, but before we actually found her, she would yell out, I'm here, I'm here. It's as if she was surrendering because she knew she had been seen. 
The thing about surrendering is that it's often associated with giving something up. You know, when I think of the word surrender, I think of a white flag or a nation conceding defeat in a war. But the surrender that Jesus invites us to is at the very heart of Christian discipleship. And it's a surrender not from a place of defeat, but to a person who sees us fully and loves us unconditionally. The psychologist David Benner says what God desires is not simply compliance in our behavior, but submission of our heart and will. Christian obedience is not submission to a duty, but a surrender to love. Because not all who obey surrender, but those who surrender obey. And as we start with the surrender of ourselves, this will overflow into the rest of our lives. It will impact who we select to seek counsel from, who we spread the load to. It starts with the self and flows over to strengthen our core and our community. And just as ants form colonies, geese fly in formations, K-pop groups succeed because of their group identity, this is how we build internal strength to withstand external pressure. And sometimes when we are brought to the end of ourselves, when the burdens are too heavy to bear, when the pressure is simply insurmountable, all we can do is surrender. You see, Moses had come to the end of himself. He had nothing left to give. But the good news is that surrender in the Christian story is never of defeat, but always one of victory. Because it's when we reach the end of ourselves, we see God begin to move in power. And we see this all throughout Moses' life. In this passage, we see a snapshot of Moses on the brink of burnout by the fire of his own energy. But in God's kindness, at key moments in Moses' life and ministry, God would reveal himself in a fire that would never burn out. In the burning bush, as God called him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. In a pillar of fire, as the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. In a cloud of fire above the tent of meeting, a constant presence wherever the Israelites made camp. And as we look at Moses' life, we see Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody. He spent the next 40 years of his life finding out he was nobody. And the final 40 years of his life discovering what God can do with somebody who realizes he is a nobody. Moses is a picture of a life fully surrendered to God, a life where he reached the end of himself, only to find the start of a new thing that God was doing in his life. It's almost as if he needed to reach the brink of his burnout to discover the power of the Holy Spirit that never burns out, the love of the Father that never runs dry, the love of the Son that sacrificed everything on the cross so that you can receive a fullness of life in Him, the love of a God who sees you fully and invites you to surrender to Him. In Asbury University in the US, there's been a revival that has taken place among university students there. It started with one of their re regular weekly chapel services and it never ended. And for two and a half weeks, thousands of people would gather day and night in that same chapel to pray and worship. Someone described it in three words, presence, surrender, and prayer. Presence, surrender, and prayer. And from Asbury, we're beginning to hear story after story of the same move of God pop up in college campuses and gatherings like this one, all across the world, and it starts with presence, surrender, and prayer. And so I thought, why don't we end that way today? Let's invite God's presence, let's take a moment to surrender, and let's begin now 
by praying. So you might want to just close your eyes and stand if that's helpful to you. You might want to put out your hands like this and I'm just going to lead us in an ancient prayer inviting the Holy Spirit's presence to come and fill you and fill wherever you're watching this from right now. Holy Spirit, would you come? We need you. One of the marks of what God has been doing in Asbury and on college campuses and college gatherings is repentance. And I wonder if there's anything that you'd like to repent for. God sees you. He knows everything that you've done. And that can be a scary thought or it can be a liberating thought that a God who sees you fully loves you unconditionally. So you might just want to take a moment to repent right now. I just had a sense that God wants to confirm a calling in your life and you might feel like it's easy to compare your calling with someone else's. Maybe you've needed to take a step back because of circumstances in your life. And I think God just wants to remind you, watching online, that He's got you in the right place, that you're doing exactly what He wants you to. You're at the right place that He wants you to be. If there is anything you'd love to receive prayer for, just get in touch with us and one of our pastors will would love to pray with you. But let me just close now with a quick prayer and then we'll finish with the final song of worship. So Jesus, we thank you that you love us, that you surrendered your life so that we can live a flourishing life. And so God, we fix our focus on you. Would we walk into this next week fully surrendered and fully free because of the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.